In the late summer of 1868, Major George Alexander Forsyth and his company of scouts departed Fort Wallace, Kansas in pursuit of a hostile Cheyenne war party. What resulted was an Alamo-like battle that pitted 51 men against hundreds as they desperately fought for their lives. Who was Major Forsyth? Why did he go kicking the horse nest trying to pick a fight with the Cheyenne? What's horse meat taste like? And who's this Roman nose guy? Find out all of this and more in this newest, if you're gonna be dumb, better be tough edition of Bloody Beaver Podcast. company of scouts that departed Fort Wallace were not a normal army unit, comprised solely of military personnel. Aside from George Forsyth, his second-in-command, Lieutenant Frederick H. Beecher, and an army surgeon named J.H. Moores, the other 48 men were civilian scouts. First-class hardy frontiersmen, as General Sheridan called them, tasked with bringing the fight to the hostiles. Both Major Forsyth and Lieutenant Beecher were veterans of the Civil War. Forsyth was a horse soldier in the Army of the Potomac and had served as aide-de-camp to General Sheridan. Beecher, at the age of 27, was a seasoned infantryman who had been wounded in the battles of Fredericksburg and Gettysburg. Likewise, many of their so-called frontiersmen scouts had some military experience. Veterans of both the Union and Confederate armies made up the ranks. Those who didn't have experience fighting back east had plenty of experience fighting on the frontier. At least some of them. This was really an interesting company, sort of a motley crew. And when I say they were comprised of 50, quote, first-class frontiersmen, it brings to mind visions of a whole bunch of Jeremiah Johnson-like characters sporting coonskin caps and carrying bowie knives. But that wasn't necessarily the case. Some of the men, like Sharp Grover, for instance, were experienced on the frontier. They knew the natives, knew their language, and in Grover's case, had been married to them. And some of the men were just farmers. Now, being a farmer on the Kansas frontier in the late 1860s was not for the faint of heart. And farmers are not, like I said, just a few short years ago, these guys had been in the bloody mess known as the Civil War. They could shoot, they could fight, and they could ride. But still, some of the men were barely men, in age at least. Several of these scouts were just 18, 19 years old. And you had older guys who were in their 40s. There was a father and son duo among the scouts. There was a Jewish kid from Philadelphia with zero experience. And this company was formed as an answer to the Cheyenne, who had been doing plenty of raiding in the area. And the war party they were after on that September day was comprised of an estimated 25 warriors of the Cheyenne tribe. Now this battle we're eventually going to get to, the Battle of Beecher Island, took place on and around a sandbar in the middle of the Arikaree River, a branch of the Republican River, not far from present-day Ray, Colorado. If you were to look up Ray on a map, you'd find a way up in northeast Colorado, just a few miles away from the western borders of Kansas and Nebraska. But back in 1868, Colorado was not yet a state. It was just territory. And the territory of Colorado did not include what's now the eastern portion of the state. This area actually belonged to Kansas back then, at least on paper. In all actuality, for all intents and purposes, it still belonged to the indigenous people that had been inhabiting the area for the past 120 to 150 years. You know, in the sense that they still lived there, still hunted there, worshipped, married, had children, sang songs there, played games there, conducted raids, just basically living their entire lives there. And these people were the Cheyenne and their allies, the Arapaho. Their territories overlapped quite a bit, and, you know, usually where you find some Cheyenne, you'll also find some Arapaho and vice versa. But for this episode, for the sake of the story, and just due to time constraints, I will be mainly focusing on the Cheyenne. And I feel like to properly understand the Battle of Beecher Island, we need to take a closer look at who the Cheyenne were and where they come from. But first, let me give a disclaimer. 
If you listen to any of my previous episodes, it'll be made abundantly clear to you that I'm a mushmouth, and I not only butcher other people's languages, but my own native tongue as well. I do try to find pronunciation guides online, but I'm not always successful, and to be completely honest, my mouth doesn't often work the way I want it to. So if I don't get certain words right, which I'm positive is going to happen, just know that it's not done out of disrespect. Okay, so uh, speaking of mispronunciations, the Cheyenne didn't really call themselves the Cheyenne. In the same way that the Sioux didn't call themselves the Sioux. The name Cheyenne, from what I can tell, is a Lakota word. Its original meaning is up for debate, but it may mean the red talkers. Somewhere down the line, white people picked this up, and I reckon it's been Cheyenne ever since. But in their own language, here I go, they are the Sassistas, the people. Once again, my apologies if I just butchered that pronunciation. The Cheyenne, much like they're sometimes friends of Lakota, came west out of the eastern and northern Minnesota Great Lakes region. Due to white encroachment and their enemies obtaining firearms before they did, they were pushed west onto the Great Plains, first in North Dakota and then later on laying claim to the Black Hills region of present-day South Dakota. The ownership of the Black Hills has definitely changed hands more than once. The Lakota were one of the last tribes that claimed it, but just like I mentioned, the Cheyenne got there before they did. And before the Cheyenne, the hills belonged to the Kiowa and I think the Arikara before them. Anyway, the Cheyenne obtained horses and were nice enough to introduce the horse to the Lakota who repaid this favor by pushing the Cheyenne further west and south, which caused the Cheyenne to push other tribes like the Kiowa further south, and so on and so forth. A lot of territory was exchanging hands around this time. And all this was happening in the early to mid-1700s. We're talking when America was still ruled by the British. When George Washington was born and learning how to walk and talk was the same time period you saw a lot of changes happening when it came to these tribes that were emerging onto the Great Plains. The classic mounted buffalo hunters and nomadic tribes of the Great Plains really came into being at this time. They acquired the horse, which made going after the buffalo and just living on the plains a whole hell of a lot easier. As they started migrating west, they began pushing other tribes out of the way as they themselves were being pushed. As you can imagine, there was quite a bit of violence involved in such territorial disputes. Eventually, tribes like the Lakota, the Arapaho, and the Cheyenne would form alliances and claim territories that took up huge chunks of present-day states of Nebraska, South Dakota, Kansas, Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado. Remember, we're talking early 1700s to the mid to late 1800s. And by this time, the Cheyenne were divided into two divisions. You had your northern Cheyenne, whose territory covered the areas of present-day eastern Wyoming, southern South Dakota, and kind of north and northwestern Nebraska. Whereas the southern Cheyenne inhabited eastern Colorado and western Kansas. And from what I understand, the only thing that differentiated these northern and southern Cheyenne was geography. They were the same people with the same language and culture, and the two divisions had close and regular contact with each other. The Cheyenne were, as were most of the people who inhabited the Great Plains, a warrior culture. The southern Cheyenne sometimes fought with the Comanche and Kiowa, and the northern Cheyenne often conducted raids against the Crow and Blackfeet, Pawnee, and the Shoshone. Warfare was something they took seriously, and warriors were not only deemed a necessary part of survival, but revered. They even had, and still have, warrior societies with really cool names like the Swift Fox Society and the Crooked Lance Society. Or the one that I think is probably most well-known nowadays, the Dog Society, sometimes called the Dog Soldiers. And while they began as a warrior society, the Dog Soldiers would eventually break off and form into a third entity of the Cheyenne. At first, though, they were kind of ostracized and comprised of castaways from other bands. And this third entity was very militaristic. They were very much opposed to any sort of peace talks when it came to the white men who were encroaching on their land. So by 1868, you had your Northern Cheyenne, your Southern Cheyenne, as well as your dog soldier band. 
And I'm not going to go over all the other warrior societies within the Cheyenne Nation, but I think the contrary warrior society is worth mentioning. I've always had such a hard time wrapping my head around these guys. Uh, apparently, they did everything backwards. If you said hello to a contrary, they'd say goodbye. If you were to come knocking on a contrary's TP and they were to yell out for you to go the hell away and never come back, what they really meant was please come inside and make yourself at home. Every day was opposite day to a contrary. I swear, I'm not making this up. And the Cheyenne were not the only tribe with contraries. Other tribes had them as well. If you've ever seen that movie Little Big Man starring Dustin Hoffman, there's a contrary warrior uh, very humorously depicted in there. But they were, first and foremost, a warrior society. A contrary would kill your ass just as quick as a dog soldier would. They are every bit as ferocious as the other societies and every bit as willing to die for their people. As far as individual Cheyenne go, you may have heard of names like Black Kettle, Dull Knife, or Wooden Leg, or Roman Nose. And if you haven't heard of Roman Nose, well, damn it, you're about to, as he would play a big part in the Battle of Beecher Island. Mr. Nose was a Northern Cheyenne and born sometime between 1820 and 1830. And while Roman Nose was a member of the Crooked Land Society, he was not a chief, nor did he ever hold any real positions of authority among the Cheyenne, other than that of respected warrior. And I do mean respected. I'm talking even other tribes knew this dude's reputation. From what little I've read, Roman Nose was not somebody you want for an enemy. A military surgeon once had this to say about Roman Nose. Quote, of all the chiefs, he is one of the finest specimens physically of his race. He is six feet in height, finely formed with a large body and muscular limbs. A seven-shot Spencer carbine hung at the side of his saddle. Four large Navy revolvers stuck in his belt and a bow already strung with arrows were grasped in his left hand. Thus armed and mounted on a fine horse, he was a good representative of the god of war. And his manner showed plainly that he did not care whether we talked or fought. And that might just be the coolest description I've ever heard of. A god of war who did not care whether we talked or fought. Here's a hot tip for you single guys out there. Go ahead and immediately replace your Tinder profile with the description of Romano's that I just read. And then try not to drown in all the pussy that's headed your way. As for me, I think I'm going to just start introducing myself to everybody as a god of war from now on. Another author said of Romano's, quote, Perhaps no other warrior attacked more immigrants along the Oregon Trail between 1860 and 1868. Not afraid of taking the fight to the enemy, this Romano's. And for the record, he didn't just wake up one day pissed off at white people. There were definitely legitimate beefs the Cheyenne Nation had with the Americans. For me, one of the first things that comes to mind is the Sand Creek Massacre that I have talked about before on this podcast. On November 29, 1864, the 3rd Cavalry, under Colonel and all-around dirtbag John Shivington, attacked a peaceful village of Cheyenne and Arapahoe in present-day Colorado. Nobody knows the exact number of Native Americans murdered during this tragic event, but it was at least 70 and possibly as many as 500. Men, women, and children were killed. And these weren't just, ah, uh, whoopsie, collateral damage, accidental kind of killings. Children were specifically singled out and shot. Pregnant women had their unborn babies ripped from their wounds. Bodies were horribly mutilated. I'm talking cutting off testicles to turn them into tobacco pouches, kind of mutilated. But even this wasn't the beginning of the hostilities. Five months prior to the Sand Creek Massacre, a ranch manager named Nathan Hungate, his wife, and their two daughters, aged two and a half years old and six months, were murdered and mutilated by... Nobody knows. More than likely an American Indian war party. But what tribe or what band, nobody could ever know. The Cheyenne would get the blame for it, though. 
And look, it could have been the Cheyenne. It's not like they never raided or killed or mutilated. The violence on the plains by this point had become an endless cycle of, you killed one of us, now we're going to kill one of you. It didn't start with Sand Creek, and it didn't start with the Hungate family. So when did it start? Without going into too much of a deep dive, the first known contact of Europeans in Cheyenne go back to when they were still living in the Great Lakes area. Skip ahead several decades, and by the 1820s, they were having regular contact with trappers and traders. Peaceful encounters. These two people did not always kill each other on sight. At some point, this relationship soured. And I don't think I'm being unfair by saying that the Americans had a lot to do with that. As more and more pilgrims started pushing west in search of the promised land, things got a little touchy. At first, the migrants were just passing through Cheyenne land. There were no plans to actually stay there and set up shop. Unfortunately, these travelers came bearing gifts, like cholera, which caused an epidemic in 1849 that possibly killed off as many as two-thirds of the tribe's population. And that'll take you off just a little bit. Cholera, by the way, is an infection of the small intestine that causes severe diarrhea, which can lead to severe dehydration, which can be deadly. Basically, you shit yourself to death. Horrible way to die. According to the World Health Organization, there are still between 21,000 and 143,000 cholera deaths each year worldwide. And this is a disease I caught more than once playing the Oregon Trail as a kid. If you're in your 30s, you know what I'm talking about. If you were born after, uh, say, 1990, you probably don't. Just take my word for it. Literally the greatest video game of all time. And as if the cholera epidemic wasn't enough, then came the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1851. This was where the U.S. government kind of divvied up land, giving each tribe their own territory. It also secured rights for the Americans to build roads through said territories and construct forts to ensure immigrant safety. Remember, they were still only passing through. Wink, wink. In return, the Cheyenne and their buddies, the Arapaho, were given portions of present-day Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas, and Wyoming. And they were also supposed to be compensated annually with money and supplies. The problem with all these treaties, first of all, no one Cheyenne could speak for any other Cheyenne. A chief wasn't some supreme ruler or dictator. They were just influential members of the tribe. You also had a language barrier. Many natives who signed on with treaties didn't really understand what they were agreeing to. And lastly, the U.S. government almost never followed up on their end of the bargain. Each subsequent treaty would see Native American land reduced even more. And those annuities of gifts and supplies either never came or the shipments were few and far between. And of course, all those roads being built would eventually not just be used for passing through. Soon enough, people would start stopping along the way to form ranches and towns. All of this encroachment on Cheyenne land ate up their resources, namely the buffalo. With all of this going on and all those wagon trains passing through, it was only a matter of time before there was a conflict. One such incident occurred in 1856, which resulted in the Cheyenne warrior being wounded. In return, the Cheyenne started striking wagon trains and travelers along the immigrant trail. This resulted in the U.S. Cavalry attacking the Cheyenne camps. And then in 1859, you had the Great Colorado Gold Rush. Before this, the people were just passing through Cheyenne land to get to either California or Oregon. But now they were stopping and mining for gold and spreading more disease. There was a big outbreak of smallpox in 1861 that further decimated the Cheyenne people. And that's one disease you do not want to get. Thank God it's finally been eradicated. Uh, maybe don't do a Google image search of smallpox like I did. The picture I saw of a young child riddled with the disease wasn't very easy to forget. According to the CDC, about three out of every ten people that got smallpox died from it. Those that survived were left with horrible scarring all over their bodies, and in some cases they were left completely blind. Thank God for modern medicine. There was another treaty in 1861, the Treaty of Fort Wise, which took away most of the land that was ceded to the Cheyenne in the Laramie Treaty. 
And once again, this was not without controversy. Six Cheyenne signed this treaty. Those six men obviously did not speak for every band of the Cheyenne, much less every single individual Cheyenne. Not surprisingly, a lot of bands simply ignored this treaty, choosing to continue to hunt and live where they'd been hunting and living. This caused them to be labeled as openly hostile. And I'm sure some of them were. Before it to escalate to the point of the Sand Creek Massacre could have been avoided. Those were deliberate war crimes. And after Sand Creek, it was on. The Cheyenne struck back and there were more military strikes against the Cheyenne. And in return, they continued to raid travelers and settlers where and when they could find them. So just to sum it all up, by 1868, in the matter of just a couple of decades, the Cheyenne had been ravaged by disease, seen their territory drastically reduced to a mere pittance of what it once was, saw the buffalo being slaughtered, saw the settlers start building on their land, the railroad began encroaching on them from the east, and they'd been attacked numerous times by the United States military. Tensions were high to say the least. And once the white people were done fighting each other back east in the Civil War, the expansion out west and further encroachment on Cheyenne really escalated. And just in case it sounds like I'm painting everybody involved on both sides as being bloodthirsty killers, that wasn't the case. Obviously, not all the Cheyenne were on the warpath. I mentioned earlier how you had your northern Cheyenne and southern Cheyenne, right? And each of these two groups were further divided up into individual bands. Some bands, many people argue most bands at this time, were for peace. Others, like the dog soldiers, were not. And it was these more warlike bands that continued to raid. I did an episode a while back on the Fetterman fight. This took place back in 1866 when a combined force of Lakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho wiped out every single man under Captain Fetterman. That's just one, albeit huge, example of the fighting that continued after Sand Creek. And make no mistake about it, word traveled fast on the Great Plains. The Lakota and Arapaho who helped destroy the men under Fetterman's command certainly knew about the massacre at Sand Creek. I'd bet big money that some of the same Cheyenne warriors who took part in the Fetterman fight had lost loved ones to Shivington's evil ways. In the same vein, some of the men who rode with Forsyth had lost loved ones to the Cheyenne raids, and some of the Cheyenne who would attack them on Beecher Island had also participated in the Fetterman Massacre. Violence begets violence begets violence, which leads us finally to the Beecher Island fight. Now that we know a little bit about the Cheyenne, let's look at the other side, George Forsyth and his merry band of irregulars. In August of 1868, General Phil Sheridan took command of the Department of the Missouri which means he was in charge of the military operations not just in the state of Missouri, but Arkansas, Colorado, Nebraska, and Indian Territory as well, a.k.a. Cheyenne Territory. By this time, the territorial governor of Colorado had axed Sheridan for assistance. Things were getting bloody, and the bodies of settlers were starting to stack up, especially in the western part of present-day Kansas. This is where the scouts came into play. General Sheridan charged Major Forsyth to raise a company of 50, quote, first-class hardy frontiersmen, to be used as scouts against the hostile Indians. End quote. George Alexander Forsyth was 31 years old in 1868 and a veteran of the Civil War. Before enlisting as a 24-year-old private with the Chicago Volunteer Dragoons, he had attended college and studied law. But Forsyth wasn't a private for very long. He received a commission as an officer with the 8th Illinois, and he served as aide de camp General Sheridan. During the war, Forsyth received a brevet promotion to colonel, and finally, at the end of the war, was appointed brevet brigadier general. Now, I'm woefully uneducated in my Civil War history. I know a little, you know, I probably know more than your cousin Dale or your great aunt Arlene, but not much. I think, and I'm probably wrong, but I think a brevet was more of a ceremonial title as opposed to an increase in authority or pay. Take Custer, right? When I think of him, I think General George Armstrong Custer. General. But his actual rank, his pay grade, was a lieutenant colonel. 
So I guess he was a general in name only, right? Hell, I don't know. I mentioned this because you're going to hear Forsyth referred to as both major and general on this episode. Due to him being appointed a brevet brigadier general in 1865, back when a whole bunch of other officers were receiving their end-of-war brevets. But in actual rank and pay grade, he only received a promotion to major of the 9th Cavalry, which is who he was attached to when he approached Sheridan and requested a field command. Forsyth wanted to see some frontier action. However, Sheridan couldn't remove other officers who were senior in rank to Forsyth just to give him a shot. So instead, he put the major in charge of this special unit of frontiersmen. And for his second in command, Sheridan gave him Lieutenant Frederick H. Beecher of the 3rd Infantry and veteran of the Battle of Gettysburg. Now that Major Forsyth had his mission, he went scouting for frontiersmen, and he found them, handpicked by himself at Forts Harker and Hayes, both of which are located in present-day Kansas. And not only did he handpick them, but he also outfitted them. I'm a big fan of lists. I always like the little details, like what people carried in their saddlebags, or what weapons they used, and what they used to wipe their asses with, stuff like that. You ever watch an old western and wonder how they slept? Like, just out in the open? You know, what about the rain and rattlesnakes? And did they just not eat ever? Did bacon not spoil back in those days? How about water? There's no way those little canteens carried enough water for a man to live off of. Well, luckily, we have a pretty good list of what Forsyth's men carried that gives a little bit of insight into these matters. They were all issued a blanket apiece, which is probably wool, a saddle and a bridle, a lariat and a picket pin. Had to be able to secure their horses. Each man was also issued a canteen, a haversack, butcher knife, tin plate, and tin cup. As far as weapons go, each man carried a Spencer repeating rifle with 140 rounds and a Colt revolver with 30 rounds. They also had four mules that carried camp supplies like kettles, picks, shovels, medical supplies, 4,000 rounds of extra ammunition, and extra rations of salt and coffee. Gotta have that coffee. In addition, each man carried seven days worth of cooked rations in his haversack. Now, I'm not completely sure what these rations were, but I think I can safely assume that it'd be the same sort of rations a Union soldier would have carried during the war. Salt, pork, and hardtack. How the hell an entire army lived off that for four years boggles my mind. I'm sure whiskey helped, though. And although whiskey is not listed as any of their official supplies, I'd be willing to bet at least one or two of the more experienced of the scouts had some bottles squirreled away somewhere. So, once provisioned by early September of 1868, this hardy group of men went a scouting for hostiles. They had orders to seek out and engage the enemy. But they didn't find any enemy at first. They made it all the way to Fort Wallace without seeing hide nor hair, almost to the present-day border of Nebraska. It was while at Fort Wallace that word came down that some freighters had been attacked about 13 miles east of there, near the then railhead of the Kansas Pacific Railroad. Forsyth and his scouts deployed to counter this attack. They soon cut sign and began tracking what they assumed was about 25 Cheyenne warriors. Not a big deal, right? Forsyth and his men had these natives outnumbered. But that would soon change as the scouts headed west, pushing deeper into Cheyenne territory. After six days of tracking, Forsyth and his men found themselves in the area of present-day Yuma County, Colorado. And it was also becoming abundantly clear that they were no longer tracking no 25 men. Instead, they found themselves following what looked like to be an entire village on the move. Something that made the savvier scouts a little nervous. Enough so that they approached Forsyth and warned him that they might be getting ready to bite off more than they could chew. And even the Major knew at this point that they had been spotted. There's no way they could have gone undetected. The Cheyenne likely not only knew exactly where they were, but how many of them there were as well. What Forsyth didn't know was that he had more than just one village to contend with. Just a few miles upriver were several large villages comprised not only of Cheyenne dog soldiers, but Lakota as well with enough Arapahoe sprinkled in to make things interesting. Now, from what I've read of Major Forsyth, I kind of like him. He seemed like a good leader for reasons I'll get to later. 
But the decision to keep pursuing a much larger force despite the warnings of his own scouts, it doesn't seem like a good idea. First of all, it smacks of glory seeking. You know, was it pride that kept pushing him onward, determined to put his men's lives at risk in order to make a name for himself or impress his superiors? Or was it a matter of underestimating the fighting skills of his enemy to the point of foolishness, thinking that even if he and his men were outnumbered, that they could still outfight their opponents? Whatever the reason, Forsyth pressed on. In his own words, quote, no matter what the odds might be against us. And maybe as a way of defending his decision, the major would later say, quote, if we could not defeat them, we would show them that the government did not propose that they should escape unpunished for want of energy in their pursuit. He would go on to say that with 51 men, even if they couldn't defeat the Cheyenne, he didn't think they could annihilate he and his company either. And, quote, furthermore, it was expected that the command would fight the Indians, and I meant that it should do so. So, yeah, he did have a false sense of confidence in his numbers, and he really wanted to engage and punish these Cheyenne no matter the cost. He also kind of employed a little bit of shame here. He let the scouts know, hey, y'all aren't taking any risk that I'm not taking. And oh, by the way, did you or did you not sign up to fight Indians? According to Forsyth, there was no more talk about halting the pursuit. And like I said, I personally believe this was a mistake. But that's easy for me to say, sitting here in the comfy confines of my Beat Laboratory slash Podcast Production Studios slash TikTok Emporium. On September 16th, the scouts camped next to the Rickery River, which was not a huge stream by anybody's standards. Matter of fact, during certain times of the year, the Arikari is more like a dry creek. At the time of our story, however, it was described as being about 15 feet wide and less than 5 inches deep. The water, that is. The actual river from bank to bank was much larger. And one feature that caught the Major's eye was a little island in the center of the river, about 70 yards from the bank on either side, and raised about a foot above the water. This little island was covered in sage grass and had a thicket of alder and willows that shot up about four or five feet, along with one lonely cottonwood tree that stood about 20 feet in height. They didn't camp on the island that night, but pretty close to it. And it's important to point out that they made camp early that day, at around 4 p.m. If the major's great sin was to pursue and engage the Cheyenne no matter the cost, his salvation was stopping early to let their horses graze. Had he continued passing through that little valley, across the river and into a nearby gorge, they would all died that very day. They knew there were enemies about, but they had no idea they had just stopped shy of sudden and certain death. Still, though, everybody was on high alert. Sentries were posted, and not only were the horses hobbled, but each man slept with his horse's lariat as close by as his rifle. The idea being, in case they were attacked, they could then grab both rifle and reins at the same time so the hostiles couldn't stampede their mounts. The night passed without incident, but early the next morning, just at the ass crack of dawn, Forsyth began scanning the horizon. Something was off. And then he and his men began hearing a dull thud, thud, thud noise. It grew louder, and then finally over the crest of a hill, he and his sentry saw waving feathers. Both the major and sentry fired the rifles and shot the alarm at the same time. Indians! Turn out! Indians! As the two men ran backwards towards camp, yelling and firing their guns, they all discovered the cause of the dull thud noise. The sound of hundreds of unshod ponies headed straight towards their little company of scouts. Every man in camp was ready by this point. Lariats wrapped around their forearms as they put the rifles to work. Just as the Cheyenne rode straight through them, banging drums and yelling and trying their damnedest to stampede the horses. Something that, had Forsyth not taken such pains to ensure the men secured their horses, the Cheyenne would have been successful at. As it were, all they got away with was a couple of horses and four mules. Unfortunately, it was the mules that carried all the extra ammo, food, and medical supplies. Acting quickly, the Major ordered his men to saddle up as he looked around, still barely able to make out his surroundings in the early morning light. And what he saw chilled him to the bone. So many Cheyenne and Lakota were appearing that Forsyth would later write that the ground, quote, seemed to grow them, 
that they appeared to start out of the very earth, on foot and on horseback, from over the hills, out of thickets, from the bed of the stream, from the north, south, and west, along the opposite bank and out of the long grass on every side of us, with wild cries of exultation, they pressed towards us. Outnumbered and almost completely surrounded, Forsyth led his men to that little island in the middle of the river. That would become their Alamo, where they'd make their last stand. And if they were to die, Forsyth said, quote, I determined that they, meaning the Cheyenne, should pay dearly for the lives of my scalps before ornamenting the ridge poles of their lodges with our reeking scalps. Once again, Forsyth was making up for his bad judgment and getting his men involved in this pickle in the first place. But describing how surrounded they were, notice he said that the warriors were coming from the north, south, and the west. To the east, towards that little island, and beyond was what seemed to be an open avenue of escape. Had he not stopped his men on that island, had they continued to flee towards the east, they would have found themselves in a little gorge just around the bend of the river. And there they would have all surely been massacred, Fetterman style. Instead, they forded up on that island. Once the Cheyenne realized that their planned ambush wasn't going to work, they launched another assault. Bullets and arrows started raining in. By the way, that's one distinct advantage when it comes to arrows. You don't have to expose yourself. You know, with a rifle, you shoot straight, right? With an arrow, you can literally be standing on one side of a hill and lob them over to the other side. The Cheyenne were doing both, firing bullets and arrows. They were coming in hot and heavy, and within minutes, Forsyth's scouts had already suffered one man dead and several wounded. Even the horses were flailing and falling down dead. In the midst of all this chaos, one of the scouts shouted that they had to move, that if they stayed on the island, they'd all be shot down like dogs, that they should try to make a run for the opposite bank, an idea that Forsyth immediately nipped in the bud, yelling that he'd shoot down any man who attempted to leave the island. Another scout, William H.H. H. McCall, echoed this sentiment. Now, would they have gunned down their own men had they tried to escape? I don't know, maybe. But any man who left that island at that point was a dead man regardless. And it would have only weakened the defenses of the men still remaining. Forsyth knew this. So did McCall and the other scouts who saw action during the Civil War. The order rang out across the ranks. Dig in and don't shoot unless you have a foreshore target. Since they had lost all the extra ammo, they had to make every shot count. And when they weren't shooting, they were quickly digging out holes to take cover in. By the way, they weren't digging their little foxholes with shovels. Those are what the mules that the Cheyenne made off with. The men in Forsyth's company were using their knives and their tin plates and belt buckles and bare hands as shovels. Hoping like hell they weren't digging their own graves. And then, just as quickly as the fight began, it seemed to slow down. Allowing the men to catch up on their digging. Their fire discipline and accuracy had evidently paid off and forced the warriors out of rifle range. Soon enough, the men on the island began hearing Cheyenne women and children wailing for their dead in the distance, indicating again that they had done some damage. That part of the Major's account of the battle was especially eerie to me. There were several villages so close that the women and children came out to watch the fight. At one point, the Major claimed that there was literally thousands of them on nearby bluffs, watching as their brothers and fathers and husbands and sons began to fall due to the scouts' rifles. The women were wailing out and mourning the deaths of their loved ones. These creepy lamentations would continue the duration of the fight. Major Forsyth took advantage of the temporary lull to go from man to man, checking to make sure they were properly digging in. At least he did until he caught a bullet in his right thigh, knocking him to the ground. According to Forsyth, the pain was so intense that he couldn't even speak for a few minutes. Moments later, a second bullet tore through his left leg, shattering the bone about halfway between his knee and ankle, which hurts me to even think about. Now remember, there's already one man dead, several more wounded, including Major Forsyth some so badly that they could no longer fight. Those who could do so began bandaging themselves and kept on fighting. All except for one guy, and oh, how I wish I knew who this guy was. Forsyth never calls him out by name, but he initially describes the scout as being very impressive. Not just to him, but to the other men as well. 
Evidently, this unnamed man had lots of experience when it came to fighting the hostile natives, and Forsyth thought that he had recruited an invaluable and experienced frontiersman. Red flag number one was how the scout bragged about his experience. Red flag number two was that he liked to joke to the point of being a bully and enjoyed picking on others in the company, especially one younger scout in particular, a 19-year-old Jewish kid by the name of Sigmund Schlesinger. Schlesinger was from back east, and unlike many of the scouts, he was not a veteran of the Civil War, or any war. He immigrated to the United States from Czechoslovakia at the age of 17 alone and eventually found work in Philadelphia. Once veterans started returning home after the war, they replaced young immigrants like Sigmund. So he went out west looking for more work, ended up in Kansas working on the railroad. All a little long day. That job was soon lost as well as construction was halted due to trouble with the natives. So Schlesinger took the next job that he could find as a scout with Major Forsyth, even though he didn't even know how to ride a horse or fire a gun. You see what I mean about Forsyth scouts not being a company of Daniel Boone's? You had legitimate frontiersmen. You had hardened veterans of the Civil War. You had farmers with some experience. And you had Sigmund Schlesinger. But an interesting thing happened there on that island when the bullets started raining down like hell. That impressive scout turned out to be a failure. He became paralyzed with fear and buried his face in the sand. Even as Forsyth and the other scouts berated him and cursed him as a coward, he still lay face down, frightened, useless. Young Schlesinger, however, who I will henceforth refer to as the fighting Jew, went into beast mode, proving himself to be, as Forsyth would later write, a, quote, gallant soldier among brave men. From dawn till dusk, little Sigmund fought just as hard, if not harder, than any other man on that island. Any warriors who exposed themselves within range of his rifle did so in peril of their lives. Like I mentioned, the gossipy part of my human nature really wants to know who the scout was that ended up lying face down in the dirt, paralyzed with fear. But then another part of my brain wonders about myself. Would I too become paralyzed with fear? Do I have what it takes? Would I be up for it? By this point, nearly all the horses on that little island were dead. Some, horribly wounded, were moaning and thrashing around. A sad, disturbing affair, but the dead horses did provide additional and much-needed cover for the defenders. This is something I've read about several times when it comes to fighting on the frontier, using a horse's carcass as sort of a breastwork to conceal yourself behind, kind of how Gus McCray did on Lonesome Dove. I always wondered how effective that would be, and years ago I decided to try it out for myself. I used to play a little paintball when I was a teenager, not a lot, but every now and then. And I didn't have a horse, but I did have this old Dalmatian named Eddie Vetter, who would always follow me out to where we'd play paintball. Eddie was getting old. He could barely walk and was mostly blind by this time. We couldn't really afford to take him to the vet, and, you know, if you're a dog lover, you understand how painful it is watching your pet suffer. So I decided to not only find out about, uh, you know, using an animal as sort of a defensive fortification, but also put old Eddie Vetter out of his misery. Sorry, it's uh, painful to talk about. Okay, so we were playing capture the flag. My team was defending and I was the closest to the flag. As the other team started rushed in firing paintballs, I took out my Swiss Army knife and I did cut Eddie Vedder's throat from ear to ear. Right in front of everybody. It was quick. Uh, he did let out a little yelp and kind of thrashed around for a minute, but then he lay still. And it did work. Not only did my Dalmatian's dead body work as a blockade to stop any paintballs, but the opposing team soon gave up altogether and went home. Bunch of sore losers. So yeah, I can definitely see how using a horse, which is much larger than a Dalmatian, would provide some serious defenses for Major Forsyth and his men there on that island. It should also be noted that the Cheyenne were adequately armed. According to Forsyth, as far as the firearms and ammunition went, the warriors were every bit as well armed as his scouts. 
They were shooting Springfield breech loaders, likely captured during the Federal Massacre, as well as Henry Remington and Spencer rifles. By the way, for those of you still listening, I was joking about cutting my dog's throat to use his dead body as a blockade during a paintball game. I have never killed or abused a dog, nor would I. And I've never owned a Dalmatian, so everybody simmer down. I was just joshing you. Really looking forward to the comments I get on that one. Back to the story. As the sporadic fighting continued, there was one warrior that kind of started to catch the major's eye. A big warrior who seemed like he was in command, riding just outside of rifle range. According to Forsyth and his head scout, Sharp Grover, this warrior was the aforementioned Romanos. This may or may not be correct, though, for reasons I'll get to shortly. For the time being, the Cheyenne didn't charge inside a rifle range, but there were enough warriors hidden who continued to pepper both man and beast with bullets. Finally, the last of the scout's horses went down, and someone from among the Cheyenne yelled out in perfect English, There goes the last damn horse anyhow. Now, in the book, The Battle of Beecher Island, which I did use as a primary research tool for this episode, the major theorizes that this was a white renegade living among the hostiles, possibly one of the Bent brothers. And I found this extremely interesting. I've often wondered if there were any real-life Lieutenant John J. Dunbars, you know, Kevin Costner's character from Dances with Wolves, a soldier who went rogue and took to not only living with but fighting with their adopted tribe against their fellow Americans. If not a deserter from the army, how about a former Confederate who wanted to continue the fight against the Yankees? Well, William and Charles Bent were early pioneers out west. They were involved with the fur trade, and Charles became governor of New Mexico and was eventually killed in the Pueblo uprising down there. His brother William constructed Bent's fort in the 1830s and did a lot of trading with various tribes, especially the Cheyenne. He ended up marrying a Cheyenne lady and her two sisters at the same time. Now, If you're banging all three of your wives at the same time on a regular basis, eventually someone's going to get pregnant. That's how statistics work. And as such, William Bent ended up having a few half-Cheyenne children. One of these kids was George Bent, born in 1843. Now, George was raised in both worlds. He grew up speaking his father's English and his mother's Cheyenne. When he was old enough, his father sent him back east to get an education. That's where George was when the Civil War broke out and he ended up enlisting with the Confederate Army and serving in a light artillery unit. At some point, he was either captured or deserted, and he came back to Colorado and took to living with his mother's people, the Cheyenne. Despite his time back east and serving in uniform, he did identify as a Cheyenne. And he and his brother Charles were present during the Sand Creek Massacre. They were able to escape, and later on, they ended up joining up with the dog soldiers. I bring all this up because, in addition to hearing someone call out about the horse dying in perfect English, Forsyth also distinctly heard the sound of an artillery bugle many times. Was it George Ben out there directing the Cheyenne with his bugle? Or maybe his brother Charles? Or was it both of them? If not them, then who? As Forsyth was contemplating this notion, a bullet reached out and popped him on the top of the head. Luckily for him, it just glanced off. But it did knock him senseless and gave him one hell of a headache. A headache he'd suffer on and off again for the rest of his life. About the same time, Army Surgeon Moores, who was sharing a fighting position with the Major, also received a bullet to the head. And he wasn't nearly as lucky as Forsyth. Moores would linger on for another three days before succumbing to his wound. Three days of lying on his back in that sand pit, half unconscious and not uttering a rational word. The artillery bugler called out again and the mounted warriors began massing at the foot of the valley, obviously preparing for a charge. Forsyth braced his back against the sand, his rifle across his chest. His men did likewise, every weapon loaded, the rifles of their dead and wounded gathered and revolvers laid ready at hand. Another bugle and the warriors went from a slow trot to a gallop. Hundreds upon hundreds of them headed straight towards the foot of the little island. The large Indian that they thought was Romano's was in the lead, his horned feathered headdress trailing behind him as he swung his heavy rifle over his head, directing the other warriors. 
Forsyth would later describe of Roman knows that he was, quote, in all his barbaric strength and grandeur. He proudly rode that day the most perfect type of savage warrior it has been my lot to see, and that his courage could only be equaled and not surpassed. As soon as the charge in Cheyenne began to pick up speed, so did the sniper fire, very intensely. And I thought this was an interesting tactic because it forced the defenders to keep their heads down. Cover and move. Jocko Willink would be proud. Forsyth knew, however, that the snipers would have to stop shooting as soon as their comrades came into the line of fire. Likewise, he knew that it was that moment, that tiny window, that he and his men would be able to attempt to repel the attack. Sure enough, as soon as the firing stopped with the Cheyenne almost completely on top of him, Major Forsyth shouted out, Now! 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 As his men, quote, gave a quick flash of their eyes along the barrels, and 40 good men and true sent their first of seven successive volleys into the ranks of the charging warriors. With each volley fired, both warriors and horses tumbled to the ground. And yet they still came, another volley, and another volley, and still the Cheyenne came thundering down, Romano still in the lead, until he wasn't. He fell, he and his horse, dead. The Cheyenne would waver for a moment, hesitate, but continue their charge. Another volley, and then like an angry wave hurls itself upon a mighty rock, the warriors divided on each side of the island. They and the defenders yelling and shouting and cursing and shooting at each other at damn near point-blank range. And then they were gone. Forsyth and his men had just been run over by hundreds of screaming and determined warriors, and they somehow all survived. All but one. Lieutenant Beecher came staggering over to Major Forsyth's rifle pit and slid up beside him. I have my death wound, General. I'm dying. He then muttered the words, my poor mother, before going unconscious. By the time the sun went down that night, Lieutenant Frederick Beecher had passed on. My poor mother. Once again, never ceases to send chills down my spine, hearing so many accounts of fighting men, experienced men who, in their final moments of consciousness, knowing that they're dying, call out for mom. By the way, there is some dispute whether or not that was Roman knows who they saw die. The Cheyenne tell a different story, one that I'm kind of inclined to believe. Roman Nose was present, and he did die that day, but probably not during that early charge that I just described. The story goes that he shared a meal with a Lakota buddy of his shortly before the fighting started, which in and of itself points to how badass this dude was. I feel like if I knew I was going to be in combat, I wouldn't have much of an appetite. Not Roman Nose, though. He ate as if it was just a normal day. I bet he was the kind of guy that didn't wait 15 minutes before jumping in the pool after eating a meal either. Anyway, once Roman Nose finished eating, he learned that his friend's wife had used a metal utensil when preparing his meal. You know, fucking women, right? You want to take the time out to cook a nice meal, why don't you go ahead and do it the right way and use the wooden or antler utensils given to us by the Great Spirit instead of this metal bullshit? Fuck! Needless to say, these metal utensils were strictly taboo for Romanos to use. It messed his medicine all up, and in order to get things right, he'd have to go through a cleansing ritual. As such, he ended up sitting out some of the initial fighting going on there at Beecher's Island. This ticked off some of his fellow warriors, and by that afternoon, they tracked him down and began giving him hell. Why are you just sitting there when our men are struggling and dying? Why won't you fight? Their pleas and probably his own conscience started working on him, and finally he suited up and joined the fight, donning that wicked horned headdress and applying his war paint. All of this, mind you, without his cleansing ritual. He would fight without his medicine. Not only that, but he'd lead the fight, just like he always did. And so it was in one of the smaller charges later that evening that the great Roman nose was mortally wounded. His companions helped him get back to the village where he denied medical help. He didn't fear death, but he knew that if he lived, judging by the wound, he'd likely be paralyzed. And much like Gus from Lonesome Dove, his vanity would not abide such a fate. 
Meanwhile, back on the island, the men assessed the damage from the big charge. There were at least three dead Cheyenne close enough for the defenders to reach out and touch. And for six or seven hundred yards to their front, the ground was, according to Forsyth, littered with dead or dying warriors and their horses. It was the Major's opinion that the big charge on the island was the level best that the Cheyenne could do. That they had thrown their full weight against the scouts, and it wasn't enough. Forsyth now felt that the outcome would come down to staying power. He and his men had proved deadly accurate with their rifles, and the Cheyenne weren't suicidal or stupid. They're not just going to keep on charging if it only results in dead warriors. Nevertheless, there were two more charges that day, but much smaller in scale. One was stopped about 100 yards away from the island, possibly the charge that killed Romanos, and the other barely made it within rifle range. Like I said, the accuracy of the scouts was just too deadly. Also, I forgot to mention that they weren't only armed with those Spencer rifles. There were at least two Springfield rifles in the hands of Lewis Farley and his son Hudson. These two farmers were considered the best shots of the company, and those Springfields could reach out and shoot further than any of the other rifles, something that the Cheyenne were learning the hard way. Now that the lines were established and the scouts were dug in, the big question was, would the Cheyenne attempt to starve them out? The men were completely out of food and water, as they had been the entire day, all that fighting under the hot sun and not a single drink of water. But as the sun went down, the sky opened up and it began to rain, quenching their parched lips. Some of the men were able to sneak out in the cover of darkness down to the stream and collect more water. Another scout dug deep enough in his firing hole until water began slowly seeping up. The men also began cutting meat from the dead horses, swallowing the flesh raw. The rest they buried deep in the cool sand. By the way, horse meat is, from what I've been told, delicious. And it's good for you, having almost as many omega-3 fatty acids as farm salmon and twice as much iron as beefsteak. It's also an abundant commodity. Here in the United States, at least, we got a big problem with overpopulation of wild horses. So why don't we eat them? Well, mostly because horses are cute. Seriously, they're kind of like big dogs, and I guess we see them more as companions than food on the hoof. Although, according to the internet, it is legal for you to butcher your own horse and put it on the grill. You just can't sell it. If you're listening to this in Europe, there's a good chance you've had horse meat and don't even know it. Burger King, Taco Bell, and even Aldi have all had problems sneaking in a little bit of horse flesh disguised as beef. The men there on the island weren't too worried about the merits of horse meat, though. Nor did they have the luxury of cooking their dinner over an open flame. Like I said a minute ago, they were slurping it down raw, but at least it was something. While his men were gathering water and horse steaks and trying to get a little bit of rest, Major Forsyth took inventory. Lieutenant Beecher and Sergeant Moores were dead. So were Scouts Smith and Wilson. Lewis Farley and Bernard Day were mortally wounded. Eight others severely wounded. Nine more slightly wounded. That left 28 men unharmed and all but six or seven of the wounded could, in a pinch, fight if things got hot. As for Forsyth, he couldn't do much of anything. His left leg was broken below the knee, there was still a bullet in his right thigh, and that head wound was almost blindingly painful. How long could they last come sunup? How many more charges could they endure? Forsyth decided they needed to send for help. If someone could make the 110-mile journey to Fort Wallace, maybe, just maybe, help could arrive in time. When the major finally asked for volunteers, he had plenty of brave men to pick from. Of those, he chose an older, experienced frontiersman, Pierre Trudeau, who, at the age of 50, was likely the oldest of all the scouts, and a young man, a teenager, named Jack Stillwell. More on Jack later. The two crept off the island in the darkened night, in stocking feet and walking backwards, hoping that their tracks would blend in with those of the moccasin Cheyenne. The next morning at dawn, the sniper fire commenced, but it did little more than irritate the scouts. The men were really dug in at this point and knew better than to expose themselves. It was a waiting game. In September, that part of Colorado, nights are cold, but during the day, it can be intensely hot. Those dead horses that the men were using as shelter began to blow it up and rot, their carcasses crawling with flies. 
As for the Cheyenne, their women could still be heard in the thousands wailing for their dead. That night, Major Forsyth sent out two more men to try to make it to Fort Wallace, but they were only gone for a couple hours. The hostiles were just too thick, and they couldn't sneak past them. On the third day, Sharp Grover observed that the women and children had ceased their mourning chants. This indicated that maybe the Cheyenne were withdrawn, giving up the fight. Could they be so lucky? It wasn't too long before some warriors appeared and tried to approach the island under a white flag of truce, something that the Major wasn't having none of. He assumed, probably correctly, that this was a ruse a way for some of the warriors to get in close and see their condition, see if it was worth making another charge. Forsyth wasn't going to take that chance and had Grover, who spoke Cheyenne, yell out for him to stay away. They pretended like they couldn't understand, so the Major ordered the men to fire a dozen or so shots at him. This they understood. That night, Forsyth once again sent two more men for help, Scouts Donovan and Plyley. They left a little after midnight and did not return. As far as the men on the island knew, they either made it through to Fort Wallace or died trying. The fourth day brought more intense heat, and the horse meat was all rotten by this point. Even still, though, they tried to boil it and sprinkle gunpowder on it to make it palatable, but it was just no use. The wounded men began to grow delirious, and the stench of those rancid and bloated horses became overwhelming. As for the major, he was less concerned with the smell and more concerned with that bullet that was still stuck in his thigh. That sucker was really starting to irritate him, and he was determined to extract it. He asked some of the men to do it for him, but they got scared once they got a good look at it. It was way too close to his main artery, and they feared they'd accidentally kill him. They started digging around in there. So he did it himself. He had two of the men press the flesh back, drawing the skin taunt, as he took out his own straight razor and cut a bullet out of his own thigh. A quick check of hands. Who here listening to this podcast has ever dug a bullet out of their own flesh with a straight razor? Anybody? Anybody? Hmm? No? Yeah, me neither. And trust me, if I ever do, rest assured, I will somehow find a way to work it into every single conversation I have for the rest of my life. Hey, Josh, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. I mean, work is kind of a pain in the ass and I need new tires for my truck. But hey, at least I don't have to dig a bullet out of my leg like I did that one time, right? Also, did you know that I'm a god of war? Uh, At dawn, on day number five, some lingering Cheyenne snipers opened up on the men once again, just to make sure they weren't sleeping, but as the day dragged on, the firing gradually lessened, and by that afternoon, it had almost completely stopped. By this point, some of the scouts had taken to standing upright. Some of the men had even snuck over to the south bank of the stream and reported that there were no more natives to be seen on that side. They were withdrawn, which was great news, but still, the wounded men weren't doing well, Forsyth included. Where was the help they had sent for? Was there even any help coming at all? By the way, to the Major's credit, he did not hesitate to heap praise on his scouts. Guys like young Hudson Farley, who I mentioned earlier. He was just 18 years old, and even after his father Lewis perished, Hudson continued to fight, even after he himself was shot through the shoulder. Another scout, Howard Morton, had lost an eye to a bullet. So what did he do? He wrapped his head up with a handkerchief and kept on fighting. Frank Harrington was shot in the head with an arrow, and the arrowhead ended up lodged in the front of his damn skull bone, and yet he too continued to fight. Finally, a bullet plowed across his forehead, hitting the arrowhead and dislodging it. Just like Morton, he wrapped his head up and stayed in the game. And then there was Schlesinger, who I talked about earlier. His first ever taste of war, he was accounting for himself as well as any other man there. Just a few small examples of individual bravery that took place on a little sandbar in Colorado 152 years ago. A place that people probably drive by every day without knowing what happened there. And I have no doubt that equal acts of bravery were committed by the Cheyenne and Lakota and Arapaho warriors as they exposed themselves over and over again to the deadly aim of the scouts. On about the fifth or sixth day, one of the scouts shot a coyote. Another found some wild plums. It wasn't much, but it was better than rotten horse flesh. Still, though, the wounded men continued to worsen. 
They grew feverish and even more delirious. Gangrene set in on Major Forsythe's leg, and he was horrified to see his wounds crawling with maggots. They couldn't just wait around to die. Somebody had to decide what to do. So finally, the Major called the men around him and laid it all out. They had to entertain the possibility that the guys who went for help never reached Fort Wallace. Those remaining on the island that could travel on foot should leave now and save themselves. As for Forsythe and the others, they'd take their chances. In his own words, quote, If relief came in time, well and good. If not, we were soldiers, and we knew how to meet our fate. Upon saying this, there was a moment of silence, and then all the men unanimously cried out, Never! We'll stand by you, General! We'll stand by you till the end! William McCall echoed this sentiment, stating, quote, We fought together, and by God, if need be, we'll die together. The next two days were kind of blurred, and at night the men would watch the silhouettes of wolves coming down from the hills, feasting on the dead horses. Finally, on the morning of the ninth day, a scout spotted movement in the distance, and then they fully came into view, the cavalry. Men began cheering and shouting and hugging each other, some laughing, some crying, and some dancing, realizing that they would live. It was a troop of the 10th Cavalry that came to the rescue, under Lieutenant Colonel Carpenter. And the 10th, by the way, were the Black Soldiers, Buffalo Soldiers, as they were called back in the day. Forsyth makes no mention in his book of race when he wrote about the rescue, but I'm fairly confident that those white men hunkered down on what's now known as Beecher Island had never in their lives been so happy to see so many black dudes in one spot. I really need to learn more about the Buffalo Soldiers. I think I'm going to do an episode on them uh, sometime in the future, educate myself a little more. It turns out the scouts Plyley and Donovan had made it to Fort Wallace before Trudeau and Stilwell, and they were returning back to the Major with a handful of reinforcements when they intercepted the Buffalo Soldiers. As for Trudeau and young Jack Stilwell, they made it as well, but it was slow going. Once they crept off that island backwards, they ended up crawling for the first three miles. After that, they hid during daylight hours, just basically surrounded by hostiles, but still within hearing distance of the fight. Night would fall, and they would slowly make their way, and then hide again before the sun came up. They carried some of that rotten horse meat with them, and it made old man Trudeau sick, slowing them down even further. One day, the Cheyenne got so close that the pair were forced to hide inside the carcass of a dead buffalo but they did make it through to Fort Wallace. And Jack, although his feet were still badly swollen from cactus needles and thistles, did join another relief party to come to the scout's aid, one that arrived shortly after the Buffalo Soldiers. Scout John Hurst described the then 18-year-old Jack Stilwell as, quote, one of the bravest, nerviest, and coolest men in the command. Comanche Jack Stilwell, as he'd come to be known, really deserves his own episode of Bloody Beaver Podcast. This dude puts the wild in the Wild West, and it just baffles me that he's not more well-known. Jack kept on scouting for the Army after Beecher Island, became friends with Buffalo Bill Cody, and worked closely with Custer that following winter against the Southern Cheyenne, Arapahoe, Kiowa, and Comanche. He was present for the Battle of Washita River in present-day Oklahoma, and Stillwell would later go on to scout for General McKenzie down in Texas, where he helped secure Quona Parker's surrender. Later on, he'd become a Deputy U.S. Marshal working out of Fort Sill in Indian Territory before moving on down to Arizona temporarily. Now, if you're a student of Wyatt Earp and he and his brother's time in Tombstone, Arizona, you might recall the name Stillwell. Or you may remember a Stillwell from the movie Tombstone. Remember that scene where Ike Canton and another guy were waiting at the train to ambush Wyatt? And the guy yells out, hey, Maddie, where's Wyatt? And Kurt Russell goes, right behind you, Stillwell, and then goes on to blow the man to hell with that double-barreled shotgun. Well, that man was a real-life guy named Frank Stillwell, the younger brother of our very own Comanche Jack. They had both gone down to Arizona together, and Jack didn't stay too long. He moved back to Texas. His little brother, though, just couldn't stay out of trouble. Got involved with the Cowboys, and he is one of the primary suspects in the murder of Morgan Earp. After Jack found out about his brother's death, he went looking for Wyatt to settle the score, but he never caught up with him. 
In the 1890s, he became a police judge, whatever that is, in El Reno, Oklahoma, and then served as U.S. commissioner in Anadarko and eventually passed the bar exam and started practicing law. He would later move to Wyoming at Buffalo Bill's invitation to look after Cody's ranching interests. And it was there in 1903 that Simpson, Everett, Comanche, Jack Stilwell died at the age of 52 from Bright's disease. All totaled six of Major Forsyth's scouts died fighting. Lieutenant Beecher, the Elder Farley, Culver, Wilson, and Dr. Moore were all buried there on the battlefield. Walter Armstrong would die several days later at the Fort Hospital. The following spring, when the Army came back to retrieve the bodies of the fallen, the graves of the Doc, Beecher, and Wilson had been dug up and the remains stolen. Only Culver and Farley were reburied at Fort Wallace. As for Native American casualties, the count varies. The low estimate is that only nine warriors were killed. Major Forsyth himself claimed to have officially counted 32 dead. Years later, he had a chance encounter with a brutal Lakota warrior who was present during the fight. I'll go ahead and share the conversation they had as the Major recited it. Just keep in mind, I have no idea how accurate this is or if it's true. Whatever. This is just coming from Major Forsyth, and it goes as follows. We had a long, and to me at least, an interesting conversation over the affair. He asked me how many men I had, and I told him. It gave him a true account of those killed and wounded, and I saw that he was much pleased. He told the interpreter that I had told the truth, as he had counted my men himself, that for four days they had been watching my every movement, gathering their warriors to meet us from afar and near, and that I stopped and encamped about two miles below where they lay in ambush for me. He said, had I continued my march another hour of the day that I encamped at four o'clock in the afternoon, every man of us would have been slaughtered. My occupation of the island was a surprise to them all, and it was the only thing that saved us. I then questioned him regarding their numbers and losses. He hesitated for some time, but finally told the interpreter something, and the interpreter told me that there were nearly a thousand Indian warriors in the fight. He said he thought the number was about 970. Regarding their losses, the chief held up two hands seven times together, then one hand singly, which the interpreter told me signified 75. I asked the interpreter if that meant killed or wounded. That, said the interpreter, signified the killed only. He said there were heaps more wounded. Just as he started to go, he stopped and spoke to the interpreter again. He wishes to know whether you did not get enough of it, said the interpreter. Tell him yes. All I wanted was my reply. How about himself? As my words were interpreted, he gave a grim, half-humorous look, and then unfolding his blanket and opening the breast of his buckskin shirt, pointed to where a bullet had evidently gone through both lungs, nodded, closed his shirt, wrapped his blanket around him, and turned and stalked quietly from the tent. Major Forsyth would recover mostly from his wounds, although he did have a permanent dent in his forehead and headaches for the rest of his life. He would go on to serve again as aide-de-camp to General Sheridan and be promoted to lieutenant colonel of the 4th U.S. Cavalry in 1881. He'd served down in Arizona way in the Apache Wars and retire in 1890. He finally passed away in 1915 at the age of 77 and is buried in Arlington National Cemetery. As for Lieutenant Beecher, obviously Beecher Island is named after him. You can visit the battle site nowadays, but due to flooding and erosion, it doesn't look anything like it did back in 1868. There is a monument, though, with the names of the fallen scouts. By the way, Lieutenant Beecher was the nephew of the famous Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So, I went down a little rabbit hole looking at what became some of the other men who fought on the island. One of the guys I was most curious about was Sharp Grover, actual name Abner Grover. I've heard of him, but I've always had a hard time finding out information on the man. I don't even know how old he was during the fight, but he was the head scout that was there. Evidently a very experienced man, very familiar with the Cheyenne to the point of being able to speak their language. And Forsyth does sing his praises throughout the story. 
From what little I was able to find out, Grover was what was known as a squaw man, meaning he was married to a Native American lady. And it looks like he did spend some time living among the Lakota. During the fight on the island, Grover was still suffering from a bullet wound he had received in the back when he and another frontiersman, a guy named Billy Comstock, were allegedly attacked by some young Lakota. Comstock was killed, but Grover, although wounded, was able to drive the attackers away. A year after the fight on Beecher's Island, Grover himself was shot and killed in a saloon fight. And at least one person claims that he had it coming. Reuben Waller, a black soldier serving with the 10th Cavalry, was a member of the party that came to retrieve Comstock's body, which they found dead, of course, from a bullet to the back. And there were no other tracks around the body than that of one lone horse, the horse belonging to Grover. It was then surmised that Sharp Grover had himself murdered Comstock and made up the story about the Indians kind of as a cover. Evidently, Sharp was arrested but ended up convincing the commanding officer there at Fort Wallace of his innocence, so they let him go. What the details were surrounding Sharp's shooting death there in the saloon, I don't know. I hope to find out more about the man in the future. Uh, By the way, uh, people have emailed me about how I pronounce the word cavalry. I do know it's C-A-V-A-L-R-Y. I know Calvary is where Jesus was uh, crucified. Uh, Just the way I pronounce it, sometimes it sounds like I'm saying Calvary instead of Cavalry. Uh, Y'all, I can't talk, okay? I don't even know how I managed to turn on my microphone to do this shit. So uh, just please bear with me. Moving forward, uh, not everybody sung the praises of Major Forsyth. One of the scouts there on Beecher Island, Thomas Benton Murphy, lived to the ripe age of 85, passing away in 1929. According to his obituary, quote, though he had refrained from saying anything for publication regarding criticism of the leaders of the government expedition, Mr. Murphy, in his later years, chafed at the hero worship accorded Colonel George A. Forsyth and Lieutenant Frederick Beecher, killed in the battle. Okay, so there you go. I guess the man likely had his reasons. And this Murphy may have been the last surviving scout that saw action on Beecher Island. 1929, when he passed away. Not that long ago, y'all. That was the same year that Anne Frank, Martin Luther King Jr., and Barbara Walters was born. Betty White, who's still alive, was eight years old in 1929. Young Hudson Farley, that sharpshooting teenager, lived to the year 1910, dying at the age of 70. Thomas Alderdice, who before the Battle of Beecher Island lost a wife and children to the Cheyenne, lived to 1925. Alfred DuPont didn't pass away until 1928. One of the scouts, James Curry, would later go on to have a feud with none other than Wild Bill Hickok. It seems the two were fighting over a whore named Ida, and one day Curry came up behind Wild Bill and stuck a revolver against the back of his head, threatening to kill him. Someone intervened, and the two ended up shaking hands and going their separate ways. And Curry kind of faded into history after that. Hickok, of course, would go on to have somebody else come up behind him with a revolver in 1876. No word on what happened to Ida. Found something kind of interesting slash humorous in another obituary for the scout Henry Eyman. He lived to be 62 years old, and after the fight, he went into the newspaper business and ended up becoming an author. According to his obituary, quote, In his later years, he separated from his family, living in a small hotel in Topeka. He was a man of many eccentricities. He lived frugally, but spent money lavishly on a blind boy whom he had met in a hospital. The large royalties received during his last two years were squandered, and at the time of his death, he was in debt. His writings, although popular, have little historical value. He died in Topeka. Now, this has nothing to do with the fight. I just found it kind of funny. Looks like Iman's heirs-to-be were a little angry and bitter about him spending what they probably thought was their money. So many questions, though. Like, who was the blind boy? Just how eccentric was Iman? We may never know. As for the fighting Jew, the 19-year-old Sigmund Schlesinger, who accounted so well for himself during the thick of the fight, he had had enough of the frontier. 
He moved to New York City and lived a long, full life, passing away in 1928 at the age of 79. His funeral was attended by a grizzled old man from Kansas. That old man was a friend and fellow scout, Jack Pete. As for Jack, he would pass away in 1932 at the age of 84. But what of the Cheyenne, possibly the last casualty of the Battle of Beach Island? You know, they, along with the other free tribes of the Great Plains, didn't have a whole lot more time left. Eight years later, many Cheyenne would take part in the famous Battle of Little Bighorn. But that was really the last hurrah. Shortly thereafter, they'd be forced onto reservation land in present-day Oklahoma, where they, like all the others, were horribly treated. Later in the 1880s, the Northern Cheyenne Reservation was established in Montana, uh, but I believe the Southern Cheyenne and Arapaho are still currently residing in Oklahoma. Their way of life may have ended not long after the last bullet was fired there at Beecher Island, but as a people, they are still very much alive and well, and their warrior traditions continue. One of the most decorated veterans out of Wyoming during World War I was a Cheyenne named Thomas Saunders. World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, the Cheyenne Nation has sent their warriors. There are currently 11,000 enrolled tribal members of the Northern Cheyenne, 5,000 of whom live on the reservation. And I couldn't get any uh, hard numbers on the current population of the Southern Cheyenne, but it looks like, according to their website, that they and the Arapaho are federally recognized as one people down there in Oklahoma. And it looks like they've gotten in on some of that casino action. So, you know, hopefully they're raking in that dough. Finally, I did mention Dances with Wolves earlier. The guy who wrote the book that the movie was adapted from is named Michael Blake, and he penned another book titled Indian Yell, The Heart of an American Insurgency, in which he does discuss the Battle of Beecher Island. Now, I have not read Indian Yell, but from judging from an excerpt I found, and just from what I've seen about the book on Amazon, I definitely want to check it out. Anyway, I do want to read part of the excerpt. Uh, in the book, Michael Blake writes, quote, The fight at Beecher Island has long been celebrated as a shining example of American determination and bravery in the face of savage, overwhelming odds. But for the whites, Beecher Island was not so much a battle as it was a humiliating ordeal that should have ended in the death of Major Forsyth and his entire command. In fact, anyone who takes the time to peek under the veneer of the battle will discover that the entire foray was naive and grossly ill-conceived. Driven by political desire to assuage public fear, the Battle of Beecher Island should have never happened. While it is connected to a long streak of conflicts that, in the quick span of 50 years, brought about the displacement and subjugation of dozens of nations, Beecher Island stands today as a colorful curiosity rather than a turning point in American military history. For the Cheyenne and their allies, however, the battle had profound, enduring consequences. Uh, Blake then goes on to give a very good and interesting history of Romanos and then talks about how the Cheyenne had to endure the railroads and the slaughter of the buffalo. He writes, uh, in my opinion, very accurately, quote, In the year before Beecher Island, organized hunting parties had sallied onto the prairie in large numbers, killing buffalo until their ammunition was exhausted, taking with them only the hides and the tongues. Soldiers shot them for sport, and by mid-1868, trains filled with day hunters were traveling back and forth across Kansas. To see animals slain in a fashion that spits on the sanctity of life, to see them staggering crippled across the prairies, and to see their intact carcasses swelling under the sun for nothing would surely create outrage in people other than the Indians. But it is difficult to imagine how the Cheyenne, like many other free roamers, must have felt. The buffalo were not simply their physical salvation. The buffalo were relatives. Fed up as the slaughter escalated, the Cheyenne and Romanos began to raid in dead earnest. They attacked stages and troops and occasionally trains, but the bulk of the wrath targeted the most vulnerable members of the gigantic white incursion, the settlers who hugged the region's waterways hoping to distill a living from the land. 
Romanos led many raids along the Solomon and Saline rivers that summer of 1868, burning and killing with impunity. No white family was saved from Indian rage. Later on in the excerpt, he writes, Perhaps it is all coming full circle. Perhaps nature will be allowed to restore some of what was destroyed. Perhaps there will come a day when a new monument will sit at the site of Beecher Island, a monument listing the names of the warriors who died there, beginning with the man called Romanose. Like I said, I have not read the book Indian Yell. All I'm going by is this little excerpt. The Cheyenne were everything we think of when we imagine the noble, proud warrior. They were fighting for their very way of life, but they also did some shitty things. The men fighting there on Beecher Island represented the American government, the same government who was just out and out robbing the Cheyenne. The government whose people didn't even consider the Cheyenne to be fully human. But those scouts were fighting for their literal lives. And some of them, like Scout Thomas Alderdice, had other motives. His 18-month-old baby had been swung by the ankles and had his brains bashed out against a cottonwood tree. His other children and wife were all murdered by the Cheyenne. Try telling someone like Alderdice about the noble Cheyenne and their anger over the buffalo. Now, once again, in no way am I critiquing Michael Blake with what I'm saying here. I'm 100% going to buy his book. I'm really interested to see what else he has to say. If nothing else, what I'm really doing is trying to make sense of all this in my own mind. Blake wrote about the raids and the killing with impunity. But that kind of just sounds like a nice way of saying the Cheyenne were raping and murdering. I guess on one hand, you can say that they didn't know any better. That they were a Stone Age people thrust against an onslaught of so-called civilization. And the quote, civilized white man certainly had their hands dirty when it came to killing and raping innocent Cheyenne. I don't know. I guess I'm of the viewpoint that I can both feel sympathy and admiration for the Cheyenne, while at the same time finding inspiration in the story of the Scouts, who, like Blake said, exuded determination and bravery in the face of overwhelming odds. I'd say someone like Lieutenant Beecher is a damn hero. And I'd say the same thing about Romanos. You know, both died for their people, no matter which side you may be on. Romanos died for the Cheyenne, and Beecher died for the men next to him there in those foxholes. Both he and Romanos were warriors. And maybe Blake's right. Maybe Romanos deserves to be on that monument at Beecher Island as well, along with the other Cheyenne who died fighting. Maybe the entire damn monument should not only be a testament of the brave men who fought there, but a warning to the rest of us to not be so fucking tribal. You know, to quote Clint Eastwood and the outlaw Josie Wells, that men can live together without butchering one another, despite differing political or religious beliefs. Hell, I don't even know what I'm talking about. And uh, I guess on that note, that's about all I've got on the Battle of Beecher Island. How about an update to cleanse your palate? File this update under the Am I Psychic category. Or maybe the Do We Live in a Simulation? And if so, did I just create a glitch in the Matrix category? So here's the thing. I'm planning on doing an episode very soon on Josiah Doc Scarlock, one of the men who wrote with Billy the Kid. Doc, as I'm sure you know, was portrayed by Kiefer Sutherland in the Young Guns movies. Well, I thought it'd be funny if I did a little misdirect on this podcast and made up a story about how Young Guns 3 is in the works and how it's going to star Emilio Estevez as Brushy Bill Roberts and be directed by the Coen brothers. Skip ahead a few days and I get a message from my listener, shout out to Joe Wheeler, that there is indeed a Young Guns 3 reboot in the works. Not making this up. Uh, he sent me the link and I'll add it in this episode's show notes. The guy who wrote both the previous Young Guns movies sent out a tweet of a movie poster, kind of image that said Young Guns 3, alias Billy the Kid, some legends never die. Now, alias Billy the Kid is the name of the book written by William V. Morrison, the attorney who claimed that Brushy Bill Roberts was actually the kid and got him to go before the governor of New Mexico seeking a pardon, which means there's likely about to be a major motion picture, probably starring Emilio Estevez, about the Brushy Bill myth. Do I believe that Brushy was Billy the Kid? Hell no. 
Will I still watch Young Guns 3? Hell yeah. Do I believe that I somehow influenced the Matrix and therefore willed this movie into being? I don't know. Maybe. Am I planning on doing a follow-up podcast on Brushy Bill Roberts? You're damn right I am. Here's another update for y'all. I also have another episode in the works that's been requested many, many times on a little someone known as Livery Eaton Johnson. Mm-hmm. So please stick around. We've got some good stuff coming up. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast wherever you're listening, please do so now so you don't miss out. YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google, Audible, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Overcast, Castro, Pocket Cast, Castbook, Podcast Addicts, and on and on and on. If it has podcasts, chances are you can subscribe to Bloody Beaver Podcast on THAR. Please share this podcast with friends and foes alike. Are you lonely and wishing you knew the words to say to that special someone you've been longing to express your undying love and affection to? What better way to do so than sending them a link to Bloody Beaver Podcast? Do you have a relative who is desperately lost in the QAnon conspiracy, spending their days mourning the loss of Parlor and scheming on how to destroy the satanic pedophile ring who's being controlled by George Soros-funded lizard Illuminati elites? Help them find a true purpose in life by sharing Bloody Beaver Podcast. With your help, I believe we can unite the world. As always, feel free to email me at bloodybeaverpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, let me know what's on your mind or just say hello. Go on over to bloodybeaver.com for more true stories from the Wild West. If you want to support the show or you're interested in bonus content, check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash bloodybeaver. I will link to all of these places in this episode's show notes. I'll also link to the uh, book written by General George A. Forsyth titled The Battle of Beecher Island. All right, y'all, that's it for this week. Special shout outs to David Allen, Mike Norris, Eric Hell, Eric Simpson, Limp Anarchist from the Ukraine, Logan Huffman, Corey Hughes, Creatures of Darkness, Michael Sparkman over there at Texas History Lessons, and little Daniel over there in Vienna, Austria. Stay safe, stay black, and always remember to store your horse meat at the proper temperature before you cook it. Adios. Adios.